Welcome. Welcome to Hungry Ghost episode four, um, and we're going to talk about food and nationalism mm. today. Uh, not just nationalism, but the various ways in which food has been sort of weaponized as a marker of identity in various ways. Whether yeah, and not just don't, not just weaponized, I guess, but it is a key yeah, marker of identity be, for for every nation. It's almost one of yeah. the cornerstones of, of course, what yeah. makes you different from those other people is is what you eat. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and it's you know a positive thing. Obviously, world cuisine is like an amazing thing to explore, and it's what makes food interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, there is no more ludicrous marker of human <laughs> stupidity than starting a war over an item of food exactly. or drink, which has yeah. happened. Yes. Um, so I want to begin, if I may, with a headline. I'll mm. read you a headline from, this is from the Huffington Post, um, 2nd of August 2013. Recent. Pretty recent. Very recent. Yeah. Just the Not. nine years old. Um, fatwa on croissants. <laughs> As Syrian Sharia rebels denounce, quote, colonial pastry that celebrates oppression of Muslims. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, sounds like something from, like, brass <laughs> or four lions or something. Yes. Um, so the early days of ISIS, then the fundamental priority was putting down a fatwa on croissants, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact, so this is, has its origins in this, idea that um, croissants were originally were baked to mark it was a Frankish defeat of the Umayyad Caliphate mm. in the 8th century uh, and the crescent shape of a croissant is supposed to be a mockery of the Islamic moon and star oh. which was on the Ottoman flag and obviously is still a symbol of, of Islam but um, there is absolutely no evidence to back this up it's an origin <laughs> story um, yeah, I but, previously heard it was something to do with Vienna when the Turks had got to Vienna right yeah yeah uh, I guess in kind of the 1500s, right? Um, and they invaded Vienna, and the the the, Viet, the Viennese, and the you know, in, in general, Germanic peoples, pretty good at their bread baking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and made a crescent shaped, same similar sort of story. They made a crescent shaped yeah. uh, pastry that then made its yeah. way over time to France. And they are from Austria, I think, originally croissants right. rather than France. So maybe more true than that one. But I think there's yeah, the idea yeah. that they're a mockery of an Islamic symbol, I think, is. <laughs> Basically, has no evidence to back it. <laughs> no. But that matters. That doesn't matter because clearly it was enough to like make them. And again, this is the same thing all the time with whether it's like the urban legends we were talking about. Uh, you know, the the facts have kind of become academic after a while. Yes. After a few rounds of like, don't the, shouldn't let facts get in the way of a good story. Exactly, or yeah, indeed or a, a good, good fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So there you go. Well, Croissants out there in the world living. In, under the terrifying shadow of a factor for no, no good reason. And look where ISIS are now. Yeah. Nowhere. And where are croissants? Popular everywhere. Um, yeah. And funny enough, French uh, patisserie has been featuring in this story for hundreds of years, even before ISIS was just a, a glitter in the eye. Um, because in 1838 to 1839, quite a long run, it was the pastry war between mm. France and Mexico. Uh, whereby um, a French pastry chef complained to the French government that his bakery in Mexico City had been looted by officials, uh, which led to the French blockading all the ports of the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> capturing the city of Veracruz. Over one bakery. 300 people died, nearly. Oh, um, good God. Speaking of our friends, the French. Yes. What are we drinking today? Well, today, uh, again, I mean, the French are certainly ones who, as we've discussed already, so early on in the episode, they get pretty nationalistic about, you know, their food, their cuisine, their bakeries in Mexico, just a bit. all the way across the Atlantic. And there's nothing from a drinks world. I mean, every nation has their own drink, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it could be quite easy to say, you know, British lager, British ale, mm-hmm. German schnapps. Yeah. But there's nothing quite as nationalistic as the French and their wine. Absolutely. And I've got a lovely bottle of Pomeroy today, a uh, Bordeaux Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we should give it a go. Absolutely. What I learned actually from learning about this particular region of Bordeaux was that, interestingly enough, on the topic of uh, na- nationalism and, and nation building, the... Let's get that sound. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listeners, we've got a, we've no got a crisis of ah, a code red, code red. <laughs> crisis of corkscrew snapping cork, cork snapped in half in a bottle. 
This is cut myself. Cut myself with a bottle opener in the ensuing fracas. This is madness. This is why you should never. This is why you should always get a screw top. This is the powers of live radio slash (laughs) non-live podcasts. Um, I was saying. It's a shame because that pop would have been really satisfying. It would have been satisfying. (laughs) (laughs) The screams would have been. Oh, that's quite good. good. Uh, The gloves. Give the gloves. Yeah, and we're not copying off menu. No, that's just that's just live. That's I mean, live. theirs is uh, some pre-recorded pre-recorded filth. Top it up a little bit, man. Thank you very much. Anyway, um, this particular <laughs> region of Bordeaux was for many years uh, part of the uh, English crown, the Angevin ah. Empire, and it was the English who actually started wine production in this region. So. Quite interesting when we're talking about. I mean, it's a very nice wine. Nationalism and food. This one's actually well, British, guys. Yeah. So don't you forget it. And actually, on which note, we should probably shout out to Woodchester Valley, mm, who are yes um, friends of ours, who a winery started not that long ago, probably right. in, only in the last fifteen years or so, um, and their Sauvignon Blanc has just been awarded as among the world's best. Incredible. Um, so. So we'll get that on for a. Uh, can't do. We should future get episode. Future episode, absolutely. Yeah. One guy who really liked wine mm. um, was again talking about the Ottomans, the 16th century Ottoman Sultan Selim II, mm. um, also known by the immortals sobriquet Selim the Drunk, <laughs> um, who supposedly, story has it, invaded Cyprus in 1570 because he was running out of wine, (laughs) initiating the Fourth Ottoman-Venetian War and, by some measures, instigating the downfall of the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) Um, So he was an example of... He became the Sultan of of the Ottoman Empire. This was 1566, and he was never in line to the throne. His older brother was going to be king. Yeah. um, But then he died of smallpox. So Selim gets the job. Yeah. It's a bit of a... Prince Harry situation. <laughs> spare. <laughs> the spare. Um, and he was happy to leave the running of the empire to his advisors and he was just, a, you know, on the piss, basically. Mm. Um, throwing parties and bacchanals and he was said to be especially fond of Cypriot wine, which is interesting. It's not something that I've particularly heard of, Cypriot wine, as someone who knows no. nothing about wine. But... Um, this, yeah, his love of Cypriot wine is often given as a motivation for um, this war because they wanted to seize control of Cyprus. The reality is there's probably a lot of other good reasons for them to want control of Cyprus, which is strategic, strategically point important. In the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah. <laughs> Very rich at that time in cotton and sugar, apparently. Um, and the Ottomans won, and they did take control of Cyprus, but... Uh, at the cost of devastating damage to their navy. Oh, God. <laughs> Obviously, strange relations with the Venetians and yeah. various other people. And so some people have positioned it as a turning point in the in the fortunes of the Ottoman Empire and suggested that um, Selim's love of wine led to the downfall of the Ottoman Empire. It may well, whether or not that's true, may well have led to his own downfall because... Um, he died after slipping in the bathroom and cracking his head. So, being one of <laughs> history's great piss artists, it sounds, <laughs> sounds like he might have been under the influence during of, yeah, of some good um, that particular Cypriot yeah. wine. You also quite often get a very visual representation of uh, nationhood in food. Yes, in the form of um, you get dishes that are like coloured like the national flag. Mm, yes, so, of course. Um, the famous example is margarita pizza. The tricolore. The tricolore, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, the white of mozzarella, green of basil, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The red of tomato being yeah. the Italian the, flag. The brown of bread. Yeah. The, beige. <laughs> the, the stick, the flagpole. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, similar, same colours, different mm. flag. It was, I was in Mexico a few years ago on, just by chance, Mexican Independence Day. Wow. And I was in a town called Papantla, and I was, at that time, so I was, I was there up doing a guidebook job, updating a guidebook. And as a guidebook writer, part of your job is you're like a dilettante restaurant critic, because you have mm. to like write little write-ups of restaurants. Yeah. 
despite being absolutely not qualified to do so whatsoever. <laughs> um, and so, you know, depending on how far you feel like your budget's going to stretch, it's kind of incumbent upon you to obviously order as much food as possible. Yes. Um, and so it was Mexican Independence Day, which is, I believe, September the 16th. And I, they had a special menu on at this restaurant. Um, and the dishes were kind of, they were themed along the colours of the Mexican flag, which right. are obviously are also red, red white, white, and green. green. So I ordered bistec a la mexicana, which is Mexican steak. Mm, red? So, so well... Oh, with other things. The steak because, itself, again, yeah. it's brown for the flag <laughs> uh, And then it's got white onions on top, like okay. raw onion. Yeah. Uh, green peppers and salsa rojo. Mm. Yes. Uh, and then chili en nogada, which is a green chili. You may have seen this, like covered in like a white cream sauce. And then they stud mm. it with pomegranate seeds. It's quite an odd looking thing. Yeah. Um, every dish was red, white and green. Yeah, they had a little menu where every dish was red, right. white and green. In anthropology, there's a term for this kind of using things like food as a marker of national identity. Mm. So there's an anthropologist um, called Michael Billig, and he called it, and he wrote a book of the same name, called it banal nationalism. Right. And so this is like everyday expressions of national identity. So like sports teams, um, you know, national anthems, mm-hmm. things like that. Use of collective language like ours and us. Yeah. Um, flags hung in embassy buildings, stuff like that. And it's a, as opposed to, like, explicit forms of nationalism are, like, drawing a border. Yes. Or waging okay. a war. And, like, yeah. the, the actual mechanics of it on, like, an international level. Yeah. But um, I feel like banal nationalism is quite a... It's almost the wrong expression because surely, like... I don't know, eating, like... Um, eating a bowl of pho in yeah. Vietnam <laughs> or some satay in Indonesia yeah. or whatever it is you're eating... That is far less banal yeah. than, you know, a grey man in a grey suit <laughs> starting a war by remote control yeah. in a government office. Yeah. And it's um, also quite, it's more active, more of the time, people engaging in consuming exactly. their national dishes yeah. every day. It's food is far the, more frequent than... Food is the stuff of life. Food is the stuff of life. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's more like an active or like cultural nationalism versus... Uh, yeah. Uh, aggressive nationalism type exactly. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and in fact, but the two things do often interact with banal nationalism and these more um, explosive, mm. like, form, literally, forms of nationalism. Um, so in 2008, um, Fadi Aboud, who's the president of the Lebanese Industrialists Association, yeah. um, decided to sue the Israeli government on behalf of the Lebanese people because he claimed that Israel was stealing foods popular across the Middle East, such as hummus, by claiming them as, as Israeli national mm. dishes. Um, and he claimed, as you just touched on feta cheese, yeah. so his precedent, legal precedent for this, his argument, he said, was that feta cheese, um, it had been ruled in 2002 that only Greece has the legal right yes, to produce in the feta year, cheese. Yeah. Um, and so this court case was an early skirmish in what would become known as the hummus wars. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's a which, war I can definitely get on board with yeah. <laughs> it's um, a fan so they it was mainly for this conflict was fought mainly on the battlefields of you know the press in yeah. in Israel uh, Israel and Lebanon um, but they descended even further into farce when Abud attempted to strike a hammer blow by breaking the world record for the world's <laughs> largest hummus uh, largest plate of hummus mm. Um, a feat they achieved in October 2009 with a 4,532-pound plate of hummus. Okay, what's that, in, what, what's that in English? Uh, how many litres of hummus are we talking? Well, <laughs> they've, they've gone for weight. We've got in Quick Google. kilograms. It's 2,050. So there's two tonnes. Two tonnes of hummus. Of hummus. Jesus. Um and then a few months later, January 2010, Israel struck back. Um, <laughs> they, they gathered 50 Jewish and Israeli Arab chefs, so they, they've got an eye on... Yeah, the cops, yeah. yeah. Um, and they converged on the town of Abu Ghosh, which is supposedly the hummus capital of Israel. Mm. Lots of famous hummus restaurants there. Um, to produce a plate of hummus weighing 
8,992 pounds, almost double. So we're talking four tonnes there. Talking four British tonnes. Four British tonnes of hummus, Jesus. Um, but don't think that Lebanon was about to let Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> if there's uh, one thing they will not take lying down, it's... If you think that they're going to like aggression from Israel, you, you, you gravely misunderstood the, the gravity of the hummus wars. Um, so in May 2010, 300 Lebanese chefs descended on the village of Fanar, east of Beirut, to smash the Israeli record out of the park. They created a plate of hummus more than double the weight at twenty thousand three hundred forty-two pounds. So, with the original one was at two tons. We're on. Basically 10 tonnes. That is that is a serious amount of hummus. You're going to need a lot of chip and dip to get through that and now, dip. Now, you don't need me to tell you that <laughs> 10 tonnes of hummus does not do that well under the Mediterranean sun. No <laughs> so, not only incredibly stupid, but probably extremely wasteful as well. Extremely wasteful. Um, and Lebanon's rec- economy has not recovered since. Exactly. That, that was probably why. They spent it on chickpeas. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, you may be thinking that quibbling over their rights to certain foodstuffs <laughs> is among the more trivial problems afflicting the Middle East, mm. but, and you'd probably be right, but um, still, it always rears its head as like a vehicle for nationalistic conflict. Yeah. Um, there's another one. So did, did Lebanon finally, did, did they win in the end? Was that the... Well, it has lain dormant since then, they've got conflict, so it's... Good. I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't want to... Jinx it by saying... Stir up tensions. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I personally am on Team Lebanon for personal reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's another... It happens as well with... Uh, probably pronouncing this wrong as usual, but Knafe, which is oh, a... Knefe. Knefe, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that that's got to be Lebanese. You're not going to tell me that's not Lebanese. <laughs> well, supposedly, there's out, there's been outrage among Palestinians over an apparent Israeli claim to Knefe. Okay, no. I mean, I'm not having that. It's, um, uh, yeah. A sweet Palestinian pastry made with cheese or cream and pistachio. Yes. We'll have to get... So, your girlfriend Jess is Lebanese. Exactly, so yeah. I, I was going to say we have to get her on the podcast, <laughs> but maybe this one is not the right one to have her on. She would... I mean, she just thinks everything's Lebanese. She thinks feta's yeah. Lebanese, she thinks halloumi's Lebanese, obviously hummus, uh, knefe. To be fair, we did... I mean, I asked her about this yeah. not so long ago, and she obviously, because she's like a reasonable, normal person, she was like, no, like... I know that obviously it's from the region, mm. from before these countries existed. Or yeah, stuff. mostly um, the Ottomans and yeah, yeah. Uh, but she was like, yeah, but people in Lebanon generally do believe that like Hummus is Lebanese. That's it. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Israel is a really interesting example of food and nationalism because it's such a young country, mm. and obviously because of the circumstances of um, of Israeli history, it's like also a particularly fraught in terms of yes. relations with its neighbours and stuff. Um, and so the way in which food is used as a vehicle for nation building and nationalism is particularly explicit in Israel. Yes. So you can see it happening like in real time. Well documented and, and recent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and there's a writer called uh, Yael Raviv and she wrote a really good book called Falafel Nation, which I very mm. much recommend. All about, she's an anthropologist and it's all about this, how Israel used is using food as... Um, a nation-building tool. Uh, she wrote, food is one of several cultural products used by the Israeli national, nationalist movement to establish and enhance the ties that would bond the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Yeah, so obviously the first um, wave of Jewish settlers in Israel, mm. most of them were European. Yeah. So they had come, they, they were Jews who'd lived in other parts of Europe and had been, you know, forcibly removed from those parts of Europe. But they had often cuisine which was um, maybe their own cuisine within those countries, but it, it wasn't Middle Eastern. Or no, there was no chickpeas. It yeah, was exactly. you know salt beef and um, pastrami, bagels, those kind of things that have spread to other parts of the world from that population. But yeah, exactly. Um, and so there's there's been various claims to there's there's obviously this kind of because it's very obvious from the outside to say well. These are regional foods, which mm. people going back to them. But then there has been some attempts to kind of uh, claim these foods as have, having been originally Jewish or Israeli. And so it's like retrospectively right. going, these were Jewish foods. And obviously the Jews were away for a long time. Mm. And now they kind of have come back to 
reclaim whatever you want to just yeah say. right uh, but but so like there's been this uh suggestion that there's that hummus is described in the bible right. <laughs> <laughs> um and so in in ruth 214 mm. there's a phrase uh at mealtime boaz said to her come over here have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar and in the uh, that's the New International Version of right. the Bible. In the Jewish Orthodox Bible, and again, apologies for my pronunciation, but it says, uh, using the words presumably borrowed from Hebrew, mm-hmm. says, um, Boaz said unto her, Come thou hither and eat of the lechem, and dip thy morsel in the chometz. Right. Um, and so this word, chometz, yeah. sounds a bit like hummus. hummus. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that, um, that alone was enough mm. for... Um, an Israeli writer, Maya Shalev, to write a newspaper article in 2007 um, arguing that Jews have been eating hummus since biblical times. Right. And his, his article was simply titled, Hummus is Ours. <laughs> <laughs> pretty unambiguous. Pretty, pretty, pretty nationalistic. Um, but as we, as from what I just read, most editions of the Bible translate hummus as vinegar or white yeah. vinegar. And it, and it, um, it wouldn't be uncommon for a word like that to have existed in the Semitic and Aramaic languages exactly. of the time and have transformed from something to something else over thousands of years. We, I mean, you see languages transform over decades and hundreds of years. So yeah. Hamels to hummus could have gone through a lot uh, of different iterations. Also, it mean, the word hummus in its modern mm-hmm. thing means chickpeas. Yeah, right? so yeah, yeah, exactly. In Arabic, so it's chickpeas. Yeah. Obviously, they would have had... Chick, there's probably it yeah. wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that chickpeas were mentioned in the Bible yeah. because they're native to that part of the world. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like rather than acknowledging that the early Zionist settlers just had absorbed some eating habits of the Arab Palestinians, yeah. which is what people do when they move yeah. to new places. <laughs> well, there's the food there, the, you know, um, the crops there, etc. It's this idea that they, in the same way as the, you know, it was claiming they were returning to their ancestral land, it was also trying to present that they were just returning to these biblical foods. Almost mm. as if they were Jewish foods, the Arabs sort of looked after them for yeah. a few <laughs> centuries, a few thousand years, and then now they're back and they'll yeah. have them, please. And they're yeah. just um yeah, so the modern word hummus in its in the Arabic and then as a loan words in Hebrew, as we said, means chickpeas, means hummus as in the dip and also chickpeas. Mm. Um but yeah, what's less likely is that the biblical version bears any relation to Chickpeas, pamela mixed with yeah the various things that make it um, yeah. So the, these the anthropologists Ronald Ranter and Jonathan Mendel say we do not deny that the biblical hamets or himster meant chickpeas. However, we doubt that, and they give an example of another passage, Isaiah thirty twenty four. We doubt that the passage in Isaiah thirty twenty four that the oxen likewise and the young donkeys that work the ground shall eat salted provender, literally boiled hamets, meant that. The animals were given chickpea paste mixed with tahini, garlic, cumin, <laughs> lemon juice, and olive oil, <laughs> <laughs> that, um, and blended with the food processor to a fine, fine pulp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, and apparently, this this attitude is also extended to the Arabic language, and they were saying rather than just acknowledging that there are he- there are loan words between the two of them, mm. like there are with, with all languages that exist, yeah, next especially that exist next to each other. Yeah. Um, it was some people were claiming that uh, Arabic, the way that they put it is Arabic was seen as a reservoir of words for the revival of the Hebrew language. So rather than just borrowing a word from Arabic, it's got to be like it had some original yeah. meaning for us, and then you took, you took it. it. <laughs> we're taking it back now. Um, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a famous postcard in Israel which is on sale in like every tourist shop of a pitta mm. with falafel in it. Mm. With an Israeli flag sticking out the top, mm. with obviously the suggestion that falafel is Israeli, but it's the exact same thing. Like, yeah, it's a regional food. Forget about countries. Like, it's from the region. Countries yeah. are imaginary. Yeah, food is not. <laughs> no. So why can't we just focus on enjoying the food? Yeah, rather? exactly. But there you go. I don't know if you want to jump in there. Yeah, we'd like to talk about some other uh, conflicts that have been talked about through food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A lovely topical one is the subject of borscht, yeah. which um, you and I have both eaten in Ukraine. 
Served in a massive cabbage. Served yeah. in a massive cabbage. Yeah. Hollowed uh, cabbage. And I've separately eaten in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and both nations claim it as their own cultural heritage. Right. Uh, similar sort of thing, I think, to the to the hummus situation. It's just it's it's so widely consumed in both countries that they want to claim that they yeah you know it, it was invented in their in their specific country right. um and do one up on the other guys mm-hmm. um so yeah it's ukraine have claimed it obviously russia have claimed it belarus and poland um but generally it is believed well the first time it's ever been written down in a cookbook was by the ukrainian in, in from a ukrainian uh cookbook um, and only really entered Russian cuisine in, in the, during the Soviet era. So right. it was actually a fairly recent uh, introduction in terms of... Sure, it's definitely around, but certainly from in terms of like what was written down. Yeah. Um, we only know about it from the, from the Soviet era. But that's not stopped uh, the government of Vladimir Putin to try and claim borscht as <laughs> one of their own. And they said uh, in 2019 that borscht was one of Russia's most famous and beloved dish- dishes and a symbol of uh, traditional cuisine. Um, and during the more more recently, they've then gone on to further say about borscht in relation to Ukraine. So the Russian, a Russian foreign ministry spokesperson during the uh, recent invasion of Ukraine by Russia said, uh, the fact that Ukrainians didn't want to share borscht with Russia was an example of xenophobia, Nazism, ah. extremism in all forms that led to the invasion. Oh, yeah. So that whole disagreement about where it comes from was just, yeah. in their eyes, emblematic of all the Nazism that was going on in Ukraine, <laughs> which is just absolutely sure. insane. Sure. Yeah. Um, but good news, uh, since then, in 2000, well, 2022, uh, UNESCO have decided that borscht is indeed... Uh, an intangible part of Ukrainian culture um, as a reaction to, to everything that's been going on in Ukraine. That's right. at least one uh, victory for they Ukrainian panic, so culture. We'll give, we'll give them borscht. <laughs> yeah. 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 There, there's a similar um, dispute going on with kimchi, I believe. Mm, yes. Um, so kimchi is quite an interesting one. Um, obviously, Korea has only been divided since the 1950s. Yeah. But... In this day and age, both North and South Korea are claiming kimchi as their own, and to a lesser degree, Japan. Um, yeah. But North and South Korea are claiming it uh, as their own cultural heritage and, and completely separate to the other country mm. on their border, um, which is obviously mental because yeah. it's it's been around in Korea as a kind of combined entity for hundreds of years, if not thousands. Yeah. So the modern, the modern kind of nations that happen to exist in that peninsula saying that one or the other invented the national dish is yeah. bizarre. It's part of their collective cultural history. Of course it is. It's just so obvious. Yeah. So, like again, with, like with the stuff in the Middle East, like well, clearly this is nothing to do with the, the lines that someone has drawn on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I had read that Japan, well, I mean, for one thing, if the decision of who, you know, is attributed ownership over these things kind of relies on the international community agreeing on it, mm. and it relies on, a, an, to a certain extent, an element of goodwill, I would have yes. thought, hence <laughs> Ukrainians getting borscht. <laughs> um, in which case, North and South Korea are not really on a level playing field. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I had seen as well that uh, Japan had made a late claim for kimchi <laughs> yeah. but I think it was kind of it was swiftly thrown out by the international body who decides <laughs> whether or not um, who, who, who decides which country has which food I think they were yeah. like no definitely yeah. not it's yeah. Korean yeah maybe North Korean maybe South Korean it's definitely not Japanese definitely yeah on the subjects of France again because mm. I'm very much enjoying this French wine it's lovely um, another marker of French I mean France like we said Probably among all cuisines uh, in the world I can think of, possibly exception of maybe Singapore, which I might get onto briefly later, but um, cuisine is central to French national identity. Yes. Um, you know, even to the point where, you know, they go about claiming they're the best at everything. 
Yeah. Which, I mean, I would question. I mean, only French people think that French food is the best. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Don't get me wrong, like, it's again, great. things it's like haute cuisine and stuff, they yeah. develop that. Yeah, they're, but, they're, not, they're certainly not at the bottom of the, the, the list, but... The national dish is a ham sandwich. The <laughs> is a ham sandwich. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. like, French cheese. I, you know, I love a Roquefort, I love a Brie. Yeah. But, uh, come on, a cheddar and a Stilton. Yeah. God then, yeah. Stinky Bishop. Being jingoistic. <laughs> but I, a Glastonbury twanger. I think even within the French's, you know, the French's neighbourhood, Italian cuisine is, takes the biscuit from, from French cuisine in my eyes. I agree. Yeah. Certainly in terms of like, as an everyday cuisine. Yeah. Like, I get it that maybe the world's best chefs are French or they're cooking French food, but that's different from Yeah, it's not, it's not what you can, yeah, as you said, what you can eat every day. It's not food for the people. It's yeah. experiments and... Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, among the more everyday dishes, which are central to, this, to the French conception, national identity, when it relates to their cuisine, is foie gras. Mm. Um, Yum. And it's, yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh, but it's an example of how something which is vilified, particularly nowadays, by a lot of people, even to the extent where you know, they banned it in restaurants in New York, foie gras, yeah. which is in a country, in the land of the free, <laughs> to say you can't eat this. You can own a gun, you but you can't eat a goose Yeah, liver. exactly. You can't cook this, use it in your restaurants, especially in a restaurant in a city which has, you know, some of the best French food outside of France, yeah. some of the best restaurants in the world. So obviously that was very controversial, but an anthropologist called Michaela de Soucy, who is, or de Soucy, an American, um, and she has written a lot about foie gras and its role in French cuisine, French culture. Um, and she said, how does an object vilified in some locales become morally and politically justified as worthy of protected status in others? So foie gras, the fattened liver of a force-fed duck or goose, is valorised as a symbol of French national identity, history and culinary culture. Mm. Um, and she talks about how the French people that she spoke to justify foie gras production by because it is cruel there's no oh, two ways about it like yeah. a lot of meat production is yeah. but it, this seems you know particularly cruel mm. because they force feed the ducks and the geese and there's the traditional way of doing it which is just jamming food down the throat yeah. and then now with modern industrial methods it's kind of, kind of even worse yeah. because the process which did take you know minutes or whatever now takes like 10 seconds yeah. and it's just like it is quite grim um, and they so, but they apparently is justified by um, claiming that it mimics a natural process because you know ducks and geese are waterfowl. Yes, and they I, apparently they still fat in their liver naturally. So it's almost like they're saying they want to still <laughs> they fat want to be force fed. <laughs> uh, and they also play out the apparent presence of foie gras in ancient Roman and Egyptian civilizations because they never did anything wrong, <laughs> morally <laughs> speaking. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I was also interested as I, I was reading um, this anthropologist to see her um, to see her mention the town of Sala, which is in the Dordogne, because I've been there. Turns mm. out um, a long time, quite a long time ago. But um, she described Sala as a foie gras Disneyland. Every restaurant in the city centre, including a pizzeria. Advertises foie gras dishes. Wow. Storefronts are packed with duck and goose products and related knickknacks. And in the town's central plaza, tourists often take photographs with the bronze statue of three geese, donated in 1875 by Rougier, France's largest foie gras producer. Now, a photo exists of me sitting on those <laughs> geese at the age of about 20, like, like a goon. Um, and yeah, I was, on, I was on like a family holiday. And I mean, it's a beautiful part of the world. You should get it on the social media pipes. Yeah, we'll put it up on the pipes, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we went to, and again, she mentions these places, these farmhouses where um, you can have traditional dinners. Where, and we, we went to one, and it, in the middle of night, no, like really, really rural, I remember like walking past, there were those, like fireflies we saw walking past, mm. it was so dark and stuff. And um, you get into this farmhouse, and I think, it, I think it was like a seven course dinner, and every course in some way involved... Uh, duck. Wow. Or, so it's, there were several foie gras courses, but then there's also Ooh. like a duck and melon oh salad, <laughs> um, and like a confit thing. And mm. I mean, very very good. Yeah. 
but yeah, it's an it's an example of how. So it's partly history because that's what the agricultural history of it is. It's partly for tourism. Yeah. Um, but then it's partly, and this is I think kind of key to what uh, to what she is saying is that it's um, it's to prove to visitors foie gras national cultural value. Yes. And the reason why they feel like they have to prove these things is because of, there's been this outcry from. I mean, to a certain extent within France, but particularly the international community of foie gras is cruel, it's barbaric, it shouldn't be allowed in this day and age. The thing that's really interesting is that France have you so being in the EU, obviously, there are certain rules about, mm. as we mentioned earlier, with feta and, and yeah. uh, parmesan, all these yeah. things. There's the appellation of origin rules. Yeah. And these were basically were brought in because there was controversy about how the blanket laws of the EU were prohibiting things to do with local cuisine. So, for example, pasteurized, you have to pasteurize yeah. milk. But because of these laws that they mm-hmm. had about you can't make a certain product unless you follow certain health and safety things, whatever, it was kind of suffocating traditional local foods. Yeah. And so their response to this was to say, okay, you can do it, but then you have this um, protected designation of origin thing. So it's a so you can do it, and then only you can sell this thing mm. as, you know, whatever it is, champagne or yeah. um, parmesan, whatever. Um, yeah, and so it's like they've, the French have used as a means of, and there's also this thing within the EU of, they want to obviously, it's promoting um, harmony within the EU, but also within that is promoting national identity yes and so it's like allowing this so the french in response to this outcry about a traditional product the french used the laws available to them within the eu to kind of quiet those concerns yeah um but yeah, to say like, it's protect is a protected part of our culture yeah we're um, going to keep on doing it yeah and a lot of the people that she spoke to were saying um that their response to the idea that it's cruel or mm. was simply to say it's traditional. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, pederasty is traditional. <laughs> domestic, Hang, hanging was traditional. Domestic but, yeah. The royal family. The royal family is traditional. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, a lot, that's not an excuse, but. Yeah. We don't encourage that. Anymore. Slavery was traditional. Slavery, exactly. Years, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, there you go. I mean, but there is also some truth in this thing. It was supposedly, it was um, depicted in Egyptian bas reliefs from 2500 BC. Foie gras. Foie gras, or something <laughs> like it. Okay. Documented in Roman agricultural treatises. treatises. So, yeah. It uh, goes back a long way, but so do a lot of things. <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't it. mean they should stick around. Yeah, exactly. But it is delicious. But again, it's one of these things uh, as well. It's, it's an identity marker. Mm, yeah. So to an extent, whether it's conscious or not, I think when you have a slight siege mentality of everyone saying... You know, we don't like it that you eat this thing or that you do this thing, whatever yeah. it is. Um, you know, it creates a sense of strength among the that that population. Yeah. It's like whether it's that or whether it's, you know, we eat pork and they don't, or we don't eat pork and they do, um, or whatever it is. It brings people together by emphasising difference with other people. Yeah, it's like um, tribalism and nation building through... Yeah. There's something, so something else that they have done in, in France, but I think also probably in a lot of other countries is... They've introduced initiatives um, to kind of educate kids and like members of the population and also people from other countries through the tourism boards and stuff about French cuisine mm. and the French palate or whatever the nation is, not just France. Um, and it's say, so it's saying like this is how we do things traditionally and this is this is yeah you know this is yeah. French cuisine this is our cuisine and this yeah. is and you know it's it's about saying you need to respect that which is fine and to you know to an extent but I think it's something. Stupid and inherently kind of potentially harmful about food nationalism like that, and all no, like all notions of nationalism, um, and in fact also like notions of um, cultural appropriation a lot of the time, which is kind of the flip side of that, mm. which is that it attempts to freeze culture in time. So it's like saying this is our French culture and this is how we do things, but it ignores the fact that the reason it's like that is because of a process of evolution over hundreds, hundreds of years. Of years of, yeah. Uh, development, experimentation, but 
crucially, borrowing from other cultures yeah. as well. It's, it's very um, uh, 19th century, early 20th century kind of mindset of we've now written everything down, we've made standards, we've made laws that never existed before, and now that's the way things must be forever. Exactly. That's what being French is, or that's it's, what being English is. Like you say, I'd say even maybe go back a bit further to like Victorian times, the yeah, obsession with classifying yeah, It's yeah. like... Um, you know, with borders, again, we talked yeah. about borders and nationalism. It's like um, when the when the British tried to invade Nepal yeah. um, and failed, actually one of the only places that's never been conquered by, by another so-called country. Uh, you know, they were just, it was a collection of different kingdoms who didn't get on with each other mm. particularly well. But they, the British couldn't get in, partly because you had the Himalayas on one side and the jungle on the other. And they said, um, all right, we'll do a treaty with you. Because that's, you know, the British way. If you don't win a war, you sign a treaty. With yeah. say, like, and part of the terms of that treaty were, um, okay, in order to agree that we're not going to invade you, we have to decide what the border border is to mm. invade. And that was a very colonial thing. Of yeah. Dividing yeah, drawing lines on a map. lines on a map, yeah. Back to the Middle East again of uh, completely arbitrary things. That and so I think people. the people in the various different ethnic groups in, in what is now Nepal were just like, what are you on about? Yeah, never um, heard of it. But... Uh, yeah, it ended up um, defining what is now mm. Nepal. Uh, another interesting one we're getting to talk uh, drawing borders is uh, lavash, which is a type of bread that uh, exists in kind of the Middle East, Armenia, Turkey, yeah. uh, and they also have um, a sort of wheat. Uh, stew there that they call keshek i think mm-hmm. um both these things are wheat-based products and both are claimed by armenia and turkey um and armenia are really really insistent on the facts and i think it's quite interesting in terms of like nation building it's like there's no way the turks could have ever made that because they were nomads right whereas the armenians were settled people who could grow wheat but surely we're going back thousands. We're going back thousands of years, and they're yeah. still banging on about it today. <laughs> <laughs> they could grow wheat thousands of years ago. I mean, Armenia was a thing during the, the Roman Empire. It was a, right. it was a province of, okay. of the Roman Empire. Right. Like they were settled people in towns and cities who had farms. Yeah. The Turks were essentially uh, yeah nomads, uh, raiders from the east, who only in kind of the you know early. Uh, second century after Christ, so early one, you know, one thousands to kind of three, one thousand three hundred, started to like actually settle down and build stuff. And there was no way they before then they had farms and could farm wheat. So quite interesting that even to this day, literally a thousand years later, Armenia are like, no, you didn't invent that because you couldn't farm. Yeah, you're on horseback raiding. So and that's still their, their <laughs> that's like, like, yeah. We we developed agriculture. We developed you. agriculture before you. Uh, and so this cuisine, this food, these particular dishes are ours because we right. knew how to farm wheat and you didn't. Yeah. It would be remiss of me to talk about this topic without bringing up the conflict kitchen. Have you heard of that? No, I've not heard of that. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it was. No longer active. Oh. A takeout restaurant in Pittsburgh that served only cuisine from countries with which the United States was in conflict. <laughs> 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 Uh, the menu focused on one nation at a time, rotating every three to five months, and featured related educational programming such as lunch hour with scholars, film screenings, and trivia nights. Opened in 2010, uh, after which it introduced the cuisines of Iran, Afghanistan, Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, Palestine, and then most recently um, Iroquois, Native mm. American wow. people. Um, and so, obviously, at first uh, glance, First hearing, it sounds like just a stupid gimmick sort of thing. But um, I think it actually was quite an interesting thing. Um, and it's, I mean, NPR described it as an experimental public art project, the medium being the sandwich wrap. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they did get a lot of, I think the, the motivation behind it was definitely to um, provoke discussion about these things. Yeah. Why are we at war with whoever? And also, you know, these are people with their own exactly. cultures, their own cuisines. Yeah. That's quite often delicious, and yeah, like you can enjoy it and empathise with these people. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. 
Another famous food, beef, is the Jollof Wars, so-called. Um, I thought we'd talk about beef, the king of meats, but no, there's one. Beef. <laughs> there's one famous food, beef, and that's beef. Yeah. Yeah. But um, figuratively speaking, figuratively speaking, um, in so various West African cuisines claim jollof rice mm, as yes. their own. Uh, this again mentioned off menu earlier. Um, lots of the guests on off menu have said jollof said rice, jollof rice yeah. and variously claimed that you know Nigerian or Ghanaian or different types which again of comes back to our broadly states that exist because of lines drawn on a map by Europeans not yeah. necessarily the cultural don't align to the cultures that yeah. exist in those places exactly I mean but the nice thing about so um, this is from a, a BBC travel article shout out BBC travel my yep. pay masters love <laughs> <laughs> um, written by Patty Slowly good name really good name um and the, the Nigerian food writer Gigi Majiri Oboma believes that the Jollof feud between Ghana and Nigeria is arguably the most heated food debate amongst any diaspora. Wow. Um, however, it does seem to be kind of quite light-hearted, I think, the Jollof. Okay, so not that debate. heated. So it's, we're not talking about going to war. We're not it. talking about, you know, Israel invading Lebanon over some months. No, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, they say, as a, Ghanaian, as a Ghanaian with many Nigerian friends, if kind of says it all, mm. I couldn't agree more. Mm. Um, two passionate nations seem to love to hate each other and both feel that theirs is the best job of rice. The main difference is the type of, one main difference is the type of rice used. Ghanaians mm. use aromatic basmati rice, which gives it extra flavour, while Nigerians use long grain rice, believing it is best for absorbing flavour. I'll go with basmati. So would I. Yeah, I love basmati. Team Ghana. It's good rice. Um... Both countries enjoy this gentle teasing, seeing it as a battle of wits, where each tries to wear the other down with its words. <laughs> one of the best battles. That. Yeah, certainly uh, not one of the heat, most heated battles. I think we've talked about more heated. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But ironically, okay. the feud actually brings Nigerians and Ghanaians together. Obama said it is a love language between both countries, similar to the, the dynamic of siblings teasing each other. And then later mm. in the same article, Senegalese chef Pierre Tiam, who owns Taranga Restaurant in New York City, believes the banter is. Both playful and really serious. I wish all I wish all wars were fought like the Jollof War. No killings, no blood. He said. I also believe that there will never be a winner. Everyone thinks their mother makes the best. I enjoyed both the Nigerian Ghanaian and even the Sierra Leonean Jollof dishes. But in my humble opinion, nothing compares to the original Senegal Jollof. <laughs> oh, bring your Senegal into the mix. So uh, right I don't want to, <laughs> with a recency bias, <laughs> sway public opinion in favour of Senegal Jollof, but. Seems as though it's a food war which is fought in quite good yeah. humour, at least. Talking of a, a food war or, or a uh, food and beverage war talking mm-hmm. in fought in quite good jest, was have you heard of the whiskey war? I've heard of it, but tell Yes, me more. so uh, between the nations of Denmark and Canada, who actually, you may be surprised to learn, have been at war since 1978. Really? The, Doesn't seem like then. The famously neutral Canadians and the famously neutral... Yeah. Well, not neutral, both, but both quite chilled famously nations. Affable. Yeah, yeah, affable nations. Don't like to get involved in too many things. Yeah. Keep themselves to themselves. Have been a vicious, vicious conflict since 1978 uh, in what's become known as the Whiskey Wars. Right. So this is... Uh, a land dispute between a place called Hans Island, Hans Island, uh, which lies between the lands of Greenland and Canada. You right. see Greenland being owned by Denmark, yeah. Canada being owned by Canada. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, geography. <laughs> um, and in 1984, so this land, it's never really been, until that time or until recently, been resolved who owns what. Right. In 1984, the Canadians provoked the conflict by planting a Canadian flag on the land and leaving a bottle of Canadian whiskey, right. which is more controversial for the whiskey connoisseurs among us. Canadian whiskey is pretty shit, right. so okay. <laughs> leaving a bottle of Canadian whiskey for some might be an insult, yeah. <laughs> but then maybe leaving your flag on some land that you think is owned by uh, uh, that you think is owned by yourself also might be an insult. Right. Um, Anyway, the, the Danes came back, uh, as they often do, 
And uh, they left a Danish flag and a bottle of schnapps and a, and a letter actually saying, welcome to the Danish island. Anyway, this went on for literal decades. The two countries proceeding to take turns to plant their own flags and exchange some alcoholic beverages. Um, until, again, I mean, we come back to it, but the Ukrainian war. So in 2022... So, again, that's 40 years since it really started kicking off with the, the first provocation by the Canadians. But in 2022, the Danes and the Canadians came together and they decided that they wanted to give an example of a conflict resolution that could be resolved peacefully. Right. In, you know, a one-up to Putin. That yeah. You don't need to have a territorial dispute and fight over it. We have a territorial dispute and we can sort it out yeah. amicably and they decided on obviously the sensible solution they split the island in half that does make sense yeah, yeah. but the really like New Guinea like New Guinea <laughs> just split it in half straight down the middle and the the final kind of icing on the interesting cake of the whole thing was that that has taken both countries which only previously had a land border with one other country so Canada being the USA yeah. Denmark being Germany right now both have land borders with a, a second country being each other. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> even if that border is in the middle of the ocean. No, it's on an island. It's a physical yeah, island. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Oh, even if that border is, is yeah. an island of about a kilometre square. We should say for context, <laughs> yeah. So it's um, 1.3 square kilometres, 0.5 square miles. Um, and, I mean, it does make you wonder, having looking at a picture of the island, <laughs> which looks like, it's like a cow pat. It's like a cow pat. There's no yeah, cake greenery almost, whatsoever. An uniced cake, maybe. It's just um, yeah, just a bit of ice round. on one on the northeast oh, yeah. coast. One on one little bit of coast. Um, I mean, not inhabited, obviously, because you couldn't yeah. live there. There's nothing going for it, but um, it does give an example of something. So we've we've talked a lot about um, something which is occasionally known as gastro-nationalism, yes. i.e. using food for nationalism. But there is, and this is an example of it, well, it's kind of an example of both gastro-nationalism and also gastro-diplomacy, mm. uh, you know, as a means of conflict resolution. So normally, most things, it's just a bit of a... Gastro-diplomacy is kind of a... Um, more of a tourist, touristic-minded kind of thing, and or at least kind of... PR, mind yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. So with that, that's probably an example of that. Another one is, um, so this is, I'm reading from uh, the South China Morning Post mm. uh, in 2018. Um, when the Swedish government's official Twitter account posted the following message with a picture of some meatballs. Oh, God. Swedish meatballs are actually based on a recipe King Charles Twelfth brought home from Turkey in the early 18th century. Let's stick to the facts. That's all it says. <laughs> the um, Swedish... The Swedish national... National so, account. So the Sweden... Saying, at Sweden. It's Sweden. an olive branch to the people of Turkey. Saying... Who may... I, I'm not aware that they were clamouring no, for the Swedish meatballs. Uh, yes, no. It might be a, uh, a NATO admittance. Was it recent? Was it 2022? 2018. It was. Okay. Yeah, it's nothing to do with NATO. <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> nothing to do with the special operation. Yeah. <laughs> um... Unlike Borscht. Unlike Borscht. Yeah. And indeed, Hans Island. Yeah. Um, but uh, this article goes on. The post lit up Twitter with users of the social media site expressing shock and sadness at the revelation the, they, <laughs> that Swedish meatballs were borrowed. From but the Swedes didn't invent packing meat together in a ball. Into a ball shape. But no one ever thought that before, apart from Ikea. <laughs> yeah. Apparently so. There's another um, food beef between mm. countries which i wanted to touch on which uh i mentioned malaysia earlier is possibly the only other country in the world certainly that i'm aware of um apart from france where cuisine plays such a central role in their nation building national identity and singapore is another example kind of like israel only less sort of contentious in the like a regional context um insofar as you know singapore until when raffles arrived, there was a handful of like fishermen in Singapore. Yeah. There was no kind of indigenous culture, and there's no 
such thing as indigenous Singaporeans Singers. as yeah. distinct from Malay people. Mm. Or, and so now the population of Singapore is divided between ethnic Malays, ethnic Chinese, ethnic Indians, uh, and Europeans, you know, expats basically yeah. come over. And, uh, which is what makes Singapore an amazing place. It's very cosmopolitan. It's very kind of... Um, it feels almost when you go there like futuristic in a way of like, you know, this is what you can imagine the cities of the future will be like because it's mm. it's almost purely cosmopolitan, completely cosmopolitan yeah. the way that it's been put together because, yeah, obviously there's like a bias, if you like, towards like people who are from the, re- the, the region, but like, um, and don't get me wrong, there are definite um, injustices in the way, like already in the way that... Um, the society is structured and stuff, which is a terrible reflection of human nature. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the Singaporean food, I mean, Singaporean food is amazing. I'd say along mm. with Malaysian food and the food in Hong Kong, probably the best food that I've ever had in the world, yeah. I would say. Um, but the rivalry between Malaysian, particularly Malaysian and Singapore, Malaysians and Singaporeans as regards food is uh very very fierce mm. and so a lot of these things the beauty of singaporean cuisine is that it's um really a blend between so malaysian food is amazing as it yeah. is right but singaporean food takes that and then it takes indian food chinese food peranakan cuisine which is this uh, also called straits chinese cuisine which is the food that came from china to the straits of malacca which is in malaysia and then the way that that combined with um chinese cuisine so it's an amazing like combination Mm. of thing of um different influences um and and singapore originally was a part well it it was a part of malaysia officially until i think 1965 was when the the nation split yeah um and so yeah this these these Right, this rubber has been rumbling on ever since, probably even since before then. And people who lived in Singapore and it like as a a regional thing within the same country. But um, in two thousand and nine, the then Malaysian tourism minister Ung Yen Yen said that Hainanese chicken rice and Hainanese chicken rice is one of these things very much associated with um, Singapore, also with Malaysia. But it's mm. like uh, one of these things. That, there are certain places you get it in Hong Kong as well, but certain things where street food stalls will be afforded a Michelin star. Yeah. So I've had yeah. it in Singapore. I can't remember I can't remember which hawker market it was at. But um I've had Hainanese chicken rice, which is basically poached chicken in rice, um and they serve it with cucumber. Sounds and amazing. it sounds like it's so simple, but yeah. it's it's absolutely it's like amazing. Hainan no, is Hainese, like whereas Yeah, where's Hainan. Hainan. So it's from China originally, but right. this this uniquely it's one of these dishes which is unique for the way in which it's come about as part of the diaspora it's, yeah it's, so the debate is whether it came around came about in malaysia or in singapore mm. um and so considering it, again they were the same country yeah until the 50s exactly. mm. and so this this tourism minister she said that um Hainanese chicken rice was uniquely malaysian and had been, quote, hijacked by Singapore. And she said the same thing about chilli crab, which is another famous Singaporean dish. Um, Although, as as far as I'm aware, it's pretty cut and dry, that originally in Singapore. Um, But then Singaporeans also, so in... um, So this article goes on, Singaporeans even the school last December when their hawker culture, which is the hawker markets in Singapore, like their street food markets. Yeah. Amazing. Like the best place to eat in the world, I would say. Mm. So as I was just saying, well, hawker stalls serving Hainanese chicken rice that either have a much desired Michelin star or rate a mention in the prestigious guide. Wow. Um, Incredible. But then, yeah, the Malaysian celebrity chef, Red Zoan Ishmael, better known as Chef Wan, uh, was quoted branding the Singapore bid to have their hawker markets recognised by UNESCO. He said it was arrogant 
And he said that people who lack confidence in their food will go all out to do things for recognition. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shots so fired said, from Chef Wan. He's saying the only reason why you want UNESCO World Heritage yeah. status is uh, because you're insecure. <laughs> yeah. But I would say, you know, the, the, the best repost you can have to that is to be granted UNESCO World yeah, Heritage I mean, status yeah. for these things. And I would, I mean... Yeah, honestly, there's. I'm not saying that everything about Singapore is perfect, but eating in their hawker markets is about as close to a perfect food experience as you can get. It is amazing. Mm. It's cheap as well, which is not yeah. the case for everything in Singapore. Um, on which note, uh, I think we should say goodbye for this week. Um, but, yeah. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please give it a like, share with your friends, give it a comment. Yeah. A review, a good a review. review would be good. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.